Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 19th, 2013, and this is episode 1074 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk all about contour gardening and woody beds and combining the two into the hybrid system that I've developed over the past few years of research and the stuff that I'm putting in right now. To go along with today's show, which will be about an hour in length like usual, there's two sets of videos that have already been put together and published to YouTube. In total, there's over 40 minutes of video explaining contour lines and the actual constructions of the beds that I'm going to describe today. So this is kind of a twofer, and it's my way of making up for the fact that you're going to get a show tomorrow on cold weather survival with Jim Phillips, one of the foremost experts on it. Uh, you're going to get a little follow-up 29-minute interview uh, with Mark Kirkwood on uh, some of the stuff we covered with biotexture training uh, on Thursday, and you're going to get nothing on Friday. So I've kind of put this together for you as a larger package. This may actually be a show you want to listen to twice, a video series you want to watch a couple times to really get it down. I don't know if you'll want to watch all of me walking the contours of the land twice, but you can skip that part if you want to and just look at the construction of the bed. This is also what we're going to be doing as our first workshop. I'll talk more about that at the end of today's show, but we're going to be doing a workshop on this construction. I'm doing these beds by hand so that when uh, some of you guys come here to do it uh, with equipment, and when I say equipment, I mean uh, excavators, so that it's a lot less manual labor, uh, we'll have the system down, skinned, ready to go, and we can make the most productive use of your time since you'll be paying to be here. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of the, uh, our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, J.M. Bullion. You know, um, I'm in the silver business now. I sell silver, but I didn't, you know, throw my sponsor, J.M., under the bus. Here's why. We sell custom-designed AOCS medallions. J.M. Bullion sells everything else. They sell silver eagles. We don't. They sell pre-64 coinage. We don't. They sell generic rounds. We don't. You get it? So that way you have choices with your silver because I've always advocated diversity in your silver. It was also important to me when I brought on a, a new sponsor for silver and gold that I found somebody that was competitive. So I found a company in JM where you can talk to the owner and yet, get this, their prices are better than large silver houses like Monex and Apnex. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags, uh, Kelly John Doe's operation. Survival Gear Bags actually was spun out of the Survival Podcast community. Uh, Kelly was in the fulfillment business, still is, a uh, dust fulfillment for companies, including teams for Major League Baseball, to give you an idea of the type of fulfillment they do. So he had access to some things. He started doing some group buys for members of our forum, and that turned into Survival Gear Bags. Great pricing and great service on all types of awesome gear. SOE tactical gear, uh, all types of equipment to put in your bags. You name it, they've got it. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. And I think so highly of Kelly and the work he's done with Survival Gear Bags. He also runs TSP Gear, uh, which is our TSP gear shop where you can get uh, shirts, hats, uh, French press mugs, patches, all kinds of cool stuff, and more cool stuff coming all the time to uh, tspgear.com. I've been asked about a member support brigade discount for that. We'll be setting one up for you when I get back from New Hampshire. Uh, so MSB members will be getting a discount at the gear shop. We looked at it, and we figured uh, there was enough margin there to justify it. It'll probably be in the neighborhood of about 10%. I uh, also want to remind you guys about 13 skills. Get on over there and take the 13 and 13 challenge. Two months are almost gone. It's time to start building your skills, folks. 2013 at 13skills.com. Remember, we are featuring different members uh, a few times a week over at 13 Skills blog. Um, so if you have a project you're working on and you have a blog post or a forum post or anything like that about, about it to tell your other people about it and you want to feature it, send it to skillgirl at 13skills.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support this show and, you know, the, the large amount of production and work that we do here to bring you quality content on a daily basis. And you'll get discounts to so many places and so many vendors that your membership will pay for itself. That's the kind of deal I put together when I put together the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you want to know more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or click on the Member Support Brigade banner. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, email me with service discount in the subject line. 
Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service before you join, not after. And I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service and save you even more money. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. So what I called today's show was all about contour gardening and woody beds. And you might wonder to yourself, contour gardening, what is that? And woody beds, why doesn't he call it culture? If you're a long-term listener here at TSP, you know that what we're talking about, we're talking about burying wood. Uh, within the permaculture community, within the agricultural community, within all the different places in America where people are doing it regularly today, um, it's called culture, And that comes from a gentleman named Sepp Holzer, but he is not the creator of, of culture. He's not the first guy to do it. This has been done for thousands of years in Austria and Germany and other places. And it's basically they make these great big high beds with a woody core. Well, the reason I call it a woody bed is I got tired of talking to people in real life, not just on the air where I had all the time in the world to explain things to them, and they would come back over and over again as audience members, but people that I would meet in the place, and they'd go, well, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm making a hoogle culture bed. And they would go, what? I mean, they would literally look at you like you had a snake coming out of one ear and a unicorn coming out of your butt. They had no idea what you were talking about. And it seemed to me that there had to be a more descriptive English-American term that would explain to people what we were doing. It was also the case that when I looked at actual hugel culture and hugels uh, being high beds, so we're talking a meter and a half, two meters high. For us here in America, that's call it four and a half to six feet high. And I said, that's not what we're doing in America. Americans in general, and not all of us. I mean, there's people building true Sepp Holzer-style Big old 70-degree angle, six-foot-high beds. At some point, I might do it. I don't know here. But right now, it doesn't fit in with my plan for mostly annual and perennial gardening for the piece that I'm working on, the design of the structure now. So I can grow peppers and tomatoes and blackberries and stuff like that. It's, and it, it's not that blackberries won't do good in those big high mounds, but that's not the type of structures I'm building now. And, and it, as I looked at other people doing similar things, not to, I haven't seen anybody actually do what I'm doing right now. Um, the closest would be Jeff Lawton without the wood cores. And, and Lawton is where I have, you know, garnered the idea of the structure of the beds and how they're laid out, uh, with some modifications. But what I saw is that people were basically digging a hole down in the ground, putting the wood in the ground and building a bed that looked very much like any other raised bed. And that's because a lot of us are working with small acreages. I'm working with three, but many people out there are working with a quarter. Uh, they're in suburbia and a six foot tall, um, you know, 50 foot long S shaped hugel bed in the backyard uh, doesn't really work for them. They don't have the space for it. They have neighbors that'll complain. So in America, what people were trying to do is keep the structures of the gardens more familiar to Americans and to work with the spaces that we had to work with. Now, since I first learned about this concept, and I learned about it from Paul Wheaton, uh, but then again, I didn't. Uh, I actually knew about it, but I didn't know I knew about it. Here's what I mean. I had all of the DVDs from the 80s with Sepp Holzer explaining everything he was doing at the Kermaterhof, and there were all these great big giant raised beds. They were the Hugel beds. He never once in those DVDs revealed that there was a wood core in them. So when I when I you know heard from Paul, I'm like Sep Sep Holzer, I know that guy, I know all about that guy, and I'm like really. So I thought it was something new. Like well, he must have. So when I started researching it, it turned out that those beds always had organic matter, and you know at least the first ones were constructed with trees. We'll get to why he actually did that later. But the reality is that this is just a technique that's been used for a long, long time. Sepp's just made it very well known. Um, and I have really kind of gravitated toward two sources of inspiration with my design uh, of landscaping since, uh, over, let's say, over the last four or five years. And that is Jeff Lawton and Sepp Holzer. Um, when I look at what the two, two guys are doing in totally different climates, Jeff works mostly in the tropics, Holzer mostly in alpine regions, and yes, both have gone to other regions, but their methodologies are tailor-made to their climates, 
And then I look at North America and I realize that most of us are in a temperate climate. Uh, there is some alpine climate in, in North America. And where Step came in Montana, it's a very similar climate to the Austrian Alps where he did work. But there's things at play in, in our primary climate, our zones, let's say, 9 through 5, 9 through 4, that are not at play in Austria. Uh, things like a snow blanket. People look at snow and go, man, that's awful cold. But think about it this way. If I have perennials and they're covered with a blanket of snow over the winter, then they're only going to be 32 degrees and no colder underneath the snow. They're going to be the same temperature as the ice or the ground. But they will not go down to 7 degrees. But in a place like Texas, if I get an occasional cold snap and the temperature goes to 7 degrees and there is no blanket of snow, There's no protection from the snow that you would think of as cold. What I'm saying is there's variances. In a climate with a lot of snow, in the winter, when it melts, I get a very slow leaching of water into the soil and a great amount of hydration early on, and not so much in the tropics, but it rains every day. And then not so much in middle America, where I have lots of rain three-quarters of the year and no rain for three months out of the year, and I never get that real slow seepage unless I create it. So when I looked at all of this together, I thought, you know what, if we take the work of these two men and we combine them, then we can do some really great things. And that's where this whole process came from. I also want to point out something that's important, and it's not tooting your own horn or anything. It's just really important that you guys understand this. I have been doing this now for several years. And when I say this, I don't mean permaculture. I mean the, uh, hugel culture, woody beds, whatever you want to call them, contour-based design. I've done it for myself. I've helped other people do it. I've looked at it. I've watched the Grand Master do it. I've been in the field. I've put my hands in the soil. I know what works and I know what doesn't. It is not theory. This is not book-based knowledge. This is hard facts, on-the-ground, results-orientated design. There are a lot of people out there that have a lot of great ideas, but they've not actually implemented them, or they haven't implemented them across multiple climates and multiple structures, so they assume what works in location A will work in location B. It's not that it won't work, it's that there has to be adjustments. To just say that one thing works everywhere um, is, is, is misleading, because it doesn't. If, if it was true, then you could grow oranges in the tundra, and you can't, right? Uh, not without doing something different anyway than you would do to grow them in Miami. And we have to be realistic about that. And I get people that I have to call dumbasses all the time on my YouTube videos. You get somebody, uh, when I did the bag garden uh, in Arkansas, I set it on top of a rock outcropping. An outcropping. Do you know what an outcropping is? An outcropping is where Mother Earth itself, the bedrock, peeks through the soil. So I had this one little crappy, it was like a whole five, five acres to work with, work with. This was the worst spot. And I got there in June, and I wanted to put up a garden fast. So I threw the bags down, I planted it, I got great production out of it, I started working on everything else. I specifically picked the spot because it was a slab of rock. And you get people, all you have to do is lay down wood chips and other crap like that. Please be aware that these statements where people say all you have to do is are generally wrong and right at the same time. They're right in specific environments and they're not in others. So what I'm going to tell you today may not make sense for every single design consideration out there. Or it may not be so important. If you live in a place like Vermont, where you get plenty of rain, and even through the winter when it doesn't rain, you get so much dewdrop, there's plenty of moisture, it may be that a contour-based garden is a great idea, but you may not even need to bother with the woody core. All right, So I'm not saying this is the way to do things. I'm saying for... Temperate climate, permaculture, annual and perennial gardening in much of the United States, this method is tested and proven and works great. And you can adapt it to be more water-wise or less intensive for water harvesting based on your own climates. It does solve a lot of problems, though, because it doesn't matter if it's dry, the water harvesting fixes that. It doesn't matter if it's wet, because the raised bed fixes that, if that makes sense. 
Uh, does that mean you can do it in the middle of the Okefenokee Swamp floating on a, a, you know, probably not. There are limitations to any design. I wanted to make sure that I, I got that out today. So getting into the design, let's start out with what is a swale and why does it work in the first place? I have an entire uh, permaculture video series with several videos with a whiteboard that go deep into swales. And if you struggle with swales at all, how they hold water, how they discharge water, I really recommend you go through that video series. Hey, I'll do it Friday when I'm not here. Um, it will help you understand the hydrology. But a swale is basically a ditch on contour. And contour, which is key to everything we're talking about today, is simply a level line. And if you look at a topographical map, you'll see all these lines, right? If you've ever seen a map with a bunch of lines on it, that's a topo map. Each one of those lines is a level point. That is a, a, a standard elevation. So if the elevation is 550 feet above sea level, as long as you follow that line from one end just all the way to the other end of the map, you're looking at 550 feet above sea level, if that happens to be where it is. And you'll notice something about those lines. They're never straight. They're sometimes a little bit straight-ish, but they always have curves and swoops. And the bigger the area, the more curves and swoops you'll observe. So nature doesn't do things in straight lines. Nature does things with clumpy, textured edges. And that's what a contour is, a clumpy, textured edge to the elevation. And if you think about a big slope, if you put your hand at like a 45-degree angle, like a karate chop, your left hand, a contour line, you say, well, that's not level, but you have a level line across the back of your hand. That's a contour in the landscape. And when a swale sits on contour and the water goes into that ditch, and a full-scale, large-scale swale for like food forest establishment, and they can be little bitty, but a full-scale one would be like six feet wide, three feet deep at the center. And all of the material that comes out of that ditch just gets dropped on the downhill side of the swale. Nice and loosely compacted. It's not compacted. It's not turned into a dam. It's very. It's just left there and maybe shaped a little bit to form a nice shape in the land. Somewhere in that swale, we take a point of at least six feet and we do not put dirt in front of that spot. That's the discharge point. We call this a sill. We take something like just the, the bucket of the excavator and turn it down and just push the ground a little bit. Hard pack the ground at the lip of the swale and push it down about an inch and a half lower than the lip of the rest of the swale. As the swale fills, if it gets beyond its capacity to hold water, it will sheet over that sill. It will do no erosion. The water will discharge down to the next feature in the landscape where it will repeat the process if we've done another swale. It's a very simple process, but we're talking about millions of gallons of water that would have run across the earth, forced into the earth, and held in the ground. That's what it's all about. That's how it works. So what's the, I talk about these contour beds as being swale-like structures, not true swales. What's the difference? Well, they're not deep enough to really be swales. They don't, form, they don't perform exactly like a swale. They're swale-like. They're built into the contours of the land, and the swaling is more of an above-ground than a below-ground feature. And what I mean is when I take the garden bed and I build it on contour, I don't have anywhere near the harvesting capacity of a true swale. But I get a lot of water that comes up against that garden bed, slows down, and seeps into the earth. But I don't drop it below grade, or not much below grade. We'll get into that in a bit. So when we're building these gardens on a swale-like structure, okay, We're mimicking the performance of the swale. We're not duplicating it. Could we? Yes, but then there's a lot more excavation involved, a lot more earth moving. And swales on a large scale are more of a forest building system than a gardening system. So we're scaling back the, the swale technology and therefore we're scaling back the performance, but we're still gaining a great deal of the performance out of that, if that makes sense. So that begs the question, if I have, if I have these contour-based garden beds, and they're going downhill, so I've got some uphill, downhill below, downhill below that, downhill below that, I've got paths in between them. Now those paths are also going to be on contour. By the very nature of, let's say we have two, two beds that are on contour, 
And they're about three and a half, four feet apart from each other from where they end. And there's about a three and a half, four foot path in there. That path is going to be a little bit downhill slope, but it's going to pretty much be on contour. Because it's sitting between two contours, therefore it's saddled, right? I've basically created a saddle here where the water is going to hit and move very, very slowly into the next bed and then seep into that bed. So the question becomes, how can contour paths then act like swales if they're not cut below grade? If we just leave them, if we just put the bed in and we don't cut them below grade. In other words, don't remove any material from the path. We just leave it the way that it is and just let the beds do the work. How can they function? Well, they function like I just said. They don't stop the water. They don't hold it the way a true swale does. But they slow it down so much, and they're now allowing it to hit the edge. An edge is always key in permaculture. Wherever you find it, it's key. The edge of this bed that's been built up, this raised bed, that's not comp it's nice, soft, loamy, high organic matter soil, and that acts like a sponge. It's what's called hydroscopic. So just like a hydrophobic means repels water, hydroscopic attracts water. So just like if you have a glass full of water and put a, the tip of a paper towel in it and let it sit there, the water level over time will go way down in the glass as the water comes up the hydroscopic paper towel. So that bed is letting that, that water weep in. It's also, with only four feet, unless we're on a steep slope, even without removing any dirt from that path, so close to level that the water wallet will move will move very, very slow. And if we move it slow, it has time to penetrate. And there's a point at which penetration becomes moot. Once the water is fully, once the, the, the material is fully hydrated, it doesn't matter how much more you try to harvest it, it's eventually going to run off or evaporate. So there's only so much we can put into the ground anyway, depending on how deep our soil structure is, what it's made of, etc., before we hit rock. In my case, I got about a foot before I hit rock. Then I got some chunky rock. Then I got slab further down. So there's only so much I can hold in there anyway. But that would lead you to the next question. Does it make sense to cut the paths slightly below grade, to remove material from the path, to actually level it, to say, okay, I'm gonna, let's say, let's say on that four feet, I have a half inch of fall. So, From the edge of the upside bed on the back side of it to the edge of the front side bed, it's a half inch lower. So I'm going to remove, let's say, um, a full inch from the front of the path and a half inch from the back. And then I'll end up with a complete flat level path that's about a half inch below grade at the lowest point of the grade. Okay, if you can visualize that. So put your two hands on a table and look at the center of them. Each of your hands is a garden bed. Your right hand is slightly uphill from your left hand. Okay, that means that the path between your two hands goes slightly downhill towards your left hand. You go in there with a hoe and you scrape about an inch of material off, but you scrape a little more material on the uphill side than the downhill side. You can even check it with a level, and you make a dead level flat surface, in half inch, an inch, to as much material as you want to remove of earth from that path. Now what do you have? You have a great big wide flat shallow swale. And I think it makes a lot of sense to do this. Because now, not only when it rains, but if we irrigate, any water that doesn't end up in the beds themselves or in the wood structure within the beds that we'll talk about in a bit, ends up sitting in that flat depression. And it can sit there for a very long time and very slowly percolate. Now, to make this work, what we have to do then, though, is we have to, just like we did with the swale, we had a sill, we need a sill-like structure. So if you look at the way I'm doing my beds, I'm basically doing, let's say, a 20-foot bed for each main row at the top anyway. There may be more beds as we get our way further down, and the beds kind of elongate as they go catty-corner in the property. But a 20-foot bed and then a 10-foot bed. Well, behind that, it's exactly the opposite. A 10-foot bed and a 20-foot bed. And there's a space between each bed in the row. So now put your hands on the table so your left hand is in front of your right hand, And your, your, uh, your tips of your right fingers are touching, uh, your palm on your left hand, uh, right underneath your thumb and then pull it back a little bit. That's a gap. And that's so that the water that's being held by the uphill swale-like bed can flow through that path down to the next level. That area needs to be leveled out and compacted. 
And that way, when the top set of beds has absorbed all the water they can and they just can't take anymore, and the water needs to discharge, it doesn't go flowing through there, right? You never want water pinched. The, the smaller the area you move, the more water through, the higher the pressure, the more erosion you get. You can move a lot of water across a flat, wide space, and almost no erosion is done because the water sheets. Think about it this way. You have a, a big, long tank, something like a bath, just a bathtub. A bathtub would work for this. You fill it up, and there's no safety drain. And you fill it up, you fill it up, you fill it up, you fill it up until, oh, no, it's going to overflow. How does it overflow? Because it goes, since the dub's level, the, it, it just sheets everywhere at the same velocity, very, very soft. Now, it's on. It's, it's almost going to be filled up, and you drill a one-inch hole in it about four inches below the lip of the tub so that once it gets up to that hole, it starts to come out that one hole. How does it come out of that hole? It shoots out of that hole, right? So when we're trying to design a landscape, unless we're putting in irrigation using waterfall for it, it's the only time we would want to compress the water, we always want to spread it out. So when we're building these beds and we're trying to mimic a swale, the way we do that is putting gaps in between them and allowing a three to four foot area for water to weep down to the next set of beds. And it's very, very simple. If you watch the videos, it'll start to make a lot of sense, especially toward the end of the second set of videos. They'll all be embedded in today's show notes. So that's contour design, swale design taken to gardening. It's simply beds built on contour, level paths in between them, and making allowances for water to move from one tier down to the next. That's the whole thing. So then we have to look at hugel culture. We look at traditional hugel culture. Or, I mean, it's the only name I have for it. I don't even know if it's the right name. What Sepp Holzer does. You go and you cut a bunch of trees down that are in the way. You put them into a pile. And you make them in kind of an S-shape. That way you create microclimates. So as you come one way and the other way, the sun hits more in one spot, less in another, help reduce wind erosion and things like that. They're not done on contour. There's, he specifically says not to do them on contour because they're such large structures. The way he does them, you'll dry out the ground below them. So he's going to take them off contour at least a bit. Much bigger, heavier structures. They're going to be about six feet to eight feet, maybe even nine feet wide at the base. They're going to run up on a 70 degree angle and then flat on the top. And you plant almost nothing on the top. Everything's planted in the sides. I would say that That huge mound is made up of about 75 to 85% dirt and only 25-15% wood material. Okay, And that just sits there. And yeah, when you plant it initially, you might wet it down until you get it, until you get a couple rains and you get a root net established. And then it just sits there and it works long term with little to no irrigation. And Sepp says he does no irrigation at all. And in my experience, yes, it works. It absolutely works. But if we're going to look at that and say, well, in America, we're going to dig a hole two feet in the ground, throw a bunch of old firewood in it, build a normal bed on top of it, and expect the same results, we might want to ask the question, before we give the wood too much credibility as being a spongy core, this spongy core that holds water, Why the hell did Sepp Holzer bury wood in the first place? Did he sit around one day and go, no, I think what I'll do is I'll get these trees and I'll put them here and I'll bury them. And then they'll become a wet spongy core holding water. And then I'll have less need or no need of irrigation. And the answer is that that's not what happened at all. If you read his books, what happens is, He has all these fir trees, these spruce trees, which is like the only thing they grow in the Alps, the, uh, the Austrian Alps. And they're like forced to grow this crap for timber and all. Nobody ever makes any money on it. And families, generation to generation, care for these trees. A hundred years in between harvest and, and everybody's still broke. So I don't want them anymore. So he starts cutting them down. So then he has all these trees. And they're not big enough to sell for timber. So what do you do with them? I got to get rid of them. So he buries them. In other words, I'm telling you he buried them because they were in the way. I had to do something with them. There's too many of them. I got to get rid of them. I know I'm going to build a raised bed. And that's probably how the first person that ever did this did this. I got to do something with this. I'm going to build a big giant raised bed, probably in an area that was too wet. Okay? At least times of the year it's too wet. 
So we do a raised bed to get the, the, the plants out of the muck, out of the deep, wet, gooey, gooky clay, and up into this nice structure. And hey, guess what? If we put wood in there, we'll need less dirt. And, you know, in the days before excavators, that was really a big deal because, well, somebody had to do that. So, original Hugu culture was probably not done with pretty big logs because wood was a premium. It was probably done with all the refuse, the branches and twigs and stuff like that. And that's what I've seen Holzer do. That's what he did in Montana. The stuff he was burying was alder and, and other trees that are almost like weed trees. Small pieces, big, whatever was there, it didn't matter. It all... Like the only thing you wouldn't want to use is like black locust, black walnut, and cedar. And cedar's even been proven to work, but I just would not pick it as a first choice. But black locust and black walnut, you're kind of fighting nature there because, well, black locust is about 50% fungicide, and we need the fungal action, which we'll get to in a second. But that's why it happened. So then we have to start saying to ourselves, well, if it's all this spongy core that holds water for us, what are the limitations of that? Well, let's say that I had a five-foot-wide hugel bed that I did like a typical America. I dug a hole and I put wood down in it, 20 feet long, okay? And I put wood in there. And let's say that I put a foot deep of wood in there. And if I said every single speck of that space is going to now hold water, which it, we know it can't, Because there's wood there, right? So the wood can get wet, it can become sponge-like, and it can hold water. But in that, just in that space, if I take a pond calculator and go five foot wide, 20 feet long, one foot deep, how many gallons of water would fit in that space? If 100% of it was water, the answer is 748 gallons, which is not that much water. When you start thinking about watering in a hot climate, 748 gallons of water, not that much water. Now, if we said that only about 20% of that space in a mature bed where the wood has really started to break down, 20% of that space can be occupied by water. It's 150 gallons. It's not that much water. It just isn't. But if the bed, when Sepp Holzer builds a bed, is nine feet wide at the base or wider, six feet tall on a 70 degree angle on both sides, And if we say that that structure, because it's made up of all this organic matter and good soil and it's cultivated over time and becomes more and more enriched, can hold water, how much water can that structure hold? And the answer is, I haven't done the calculation because the fact that it, it triangles out makes it a little more complicated than I feel like doing. But I can tell you that per 20 feet, it's a hell of a lot more than 748 gallons. And if you look at the beds that I'm building, and I have a trench that the wood's in, about two feet, two and a half feet wide. It's holding about nine inches of wood, nine inches of thickness of wood in that two and a half foot by 20 foot or two and a half foot by 10 foot run. There's a less significantly less water than five foot, a five foot trench, a foot deep. So maybe that wood, when it's matured next year and really gotten kind of broke down and the fungal activity is going on and it's gotten nice and you could, if you took it out, you couldn't break it in half if it's a four inch piece of wood, but you could break pieces off of it. It would start to come apart. Maybe when it gets like that, maybe it can hold 50, 100 gallons of water. So why does it work? Right? It works because it's hydroscopic. In other words, it draws water. That's one of the reasons I, I, I have determined in studying multiple structures built the SEP way, the American way, the Paul Wheaton way, whatever. Every different way people do this. The, the, the component that's really at play here is if anything's wet around it, it will pull the water to it. All right? So now we start looking at some other things that are at play. One, if you find a rotting log in the forest, which is what we're creating under the dirt, a rotting log, I promise you that when you start pulling it apart and playing with it and looking at it, you will find fungus on it. It may not have fruited out into a mushroom yet, but if you start tearing it apart, you'll see mycelium or the little fungal hair net being formed in there. When we build a culture, fungus says, ooh, look, yummy. Organic matter, carbon, and it's wet carbon. Yum, 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 yum. And it 
colonizes that wood. I don't care if it's wood that was already colonized by fungus or fresh cut timber. In time, moist and organic matter rich soil, you are going to get fungus attacking that log. That's what breaks it down. That's what eats it. That is the teeth of the forest. And I learned this from Lawton on Food Forest Establishment. These are the two worlds converging here. So if that happens, once the mycelium get all their little greedy teeth into the wood and they start growing, do you know what they do? They grow out like a spider web. They cast this net through the entire mound. And you end up with this web. And what I learned from Bill Mollison, in a good cubic meter of soil, un, you know, not unmolested, not tilled every year, where the fungi have a chance to establish themselves, one cubic meter has 500 kilometers of fungal hyphae. 500 kilometers of net in a cubic meter. Three meters, right? Right? Your cubic meter, one meter by one meter by one meter. A cube. Take it to cubic yards and miles. Three feet by three feet by three foot cube of soil. About 360 miles of mycelium. So how much is in a bed that's made up of two or three cubic yards? And the answer is simple. Once established, you're looking at close to a thousand miles of fungal hyphae. Just in the bed. We haven't even gotten to the surrounding ground that we're also incubating as well. So now I've got a bed that's only 20 feet long with a thousand miles of additional root system in it. Because this is what happens. The fungal hyphae move water and nutrients just like a root. And they will actually attach themselves harmlessly to the root systems of your crops. And they'll have a, a, a benevolent exchange, a symbiotic exchange you, I, I, carrot, you have a little bit of selenium and we could use some, not a lot. We'd like a little bit of it. And the carrot, and it's not really the dialogue, but this is how the biochemistry works. The carrot's like, I need a little more water than I have right now. And then there's an exchange made. These exchanges happen all the time in nature. It's why polyculture outperforms a monoculture. But we've got to look at that. Then we have to actually look at the reservoir that we're creating. So Sepp Holzer does these big 70 degree angles. And he's creating that entire bed's becoming a reservoir, not just the wood. The wood is helping to hold it in place so that it's accessible. But it's also true that the ground is getting very, very saturated over time. As the bed becomes saturated behind its ability to hold water, you're getting zero evaporation under the bed. So you're starting to build a reservoir underneath the bed. Well, how does this, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, Spirico methodology using permaculture or using Hugo culture combined with contour garden beds, a la Jeff Lawton, work. It actually takes the water and puts it not just into the bed, into the ground under the bed, but into the ground that encompasses the entire garden, so under the footpaths. So now let's look at something interesting. If I build my garden, okay, with pathways that are about three and a half, four feet between the beds, that means I get about six feet to each, you know, when I combine both sides of a bed that are part of the reservoir for that bed. Um, and plus the bed itself of about four and a half feet. So I get about ten and a half feet of the, of the surface underneath every bed. And I also probably go out past my 20 feet, at least a couple feet, where that bed is able to harvest water from. So we say 25 feet. So now I got 10 foot by 25 foot. And let's say I have a depth of about two feet of soil that I can hold water in. Now, I'm not counting the bed or the wood. I'm just counting all the other soil. If I look at that, that space can hold almost 4,000 gallons of water. Now, if I decide that what I want to do is calculate that based on what, what if it's holding... Um, a, a couple inches of water there. We, we can still hold, holding maybe four inches of water and two feet of soil, about a thousand gallons of water per bed. So now I've got the water in the surrounding ground, I've got the water in the bed, I've got the water in the core. Now, now I've got something. And if I do this long enough and large enough, 
Basically, I have turned the entire surface area of the garden, not just where things are growing, but the footpaths underneath as well, into a large watershed. And that means when it rains, it harvests and it holds. And the longer I do it, the more I'll build it up, the more organic matter and life goes in that soil, the more mycelium penetrate that soil, the more water it will hold. And it will become more fertile and more lush over time. And I can go from needing a little bit of irrigation to needing no irrigation at all over time. But I think what we can establish here is to just say that the piece of wood holds extra water that the plants can access is really short-sighted. I don't know how any of us, including myself, ever bought into that in the first place. There's not enough volume there to sustain the plants in and of itself. It has to be this combined feature of the structure, the watershed under the structure, the woody core, and the interaction of soil life, mycelium, and fungus. This combination is what works. So once we understand the combination, and we want to take it from a, a six-foot-high mound that doesn't work for people in many situations and bring it down to something more conventional, we can understand how to do that. Now, there's some other things that go on here as well. You'll find that plants grown in a, a organic matter core structure. And it doesn't have to be wood. People keep saying, can you use wood chips? Yes, you can use wood chips. I don't care what you put down there. It doesn't matter. You can put any organic matter that will be a slow breakdown form of organic matter in there, and it'll work. Seb Holzer's built some with rotted potatoes. Okay, so if you can do it with rotted potatoes, you can do it with wood chips. You could do it with straw. You could do it with anything. It's just that wood takes longer to break down, so the system has a longer life cycle. All right, But whatever it is, is in there breaking down. It's composting. It's both a fungal breakdown and a bacterial breakdown. But it's a slow bacterial breakdown. Well, what happens whenever you get any kind of a composting action? You get some heat. So your roots in colder climates are protected, and your plants are more likely to survive light frostings. So that would make people go, well, crap, if it's hot here, does that mean that my roots are going to burn up? No, because it's a slow compost. And there's only so much heat in the soil. What we're talking about is enough heat to maintain the soil temperature at shallow levels where the climate would otherwise cool it. Because once we get deep enough in the soil, it's pretty much a constant temperature. doesn't matter if it's zero degrees or 100 degrees above ground. The below ground temperature is the same. It's in that area where the, the temperature can fall that this composting helps maintain a stasis or go slightly above the ground temperature, but not high enough to do damage to your roots. So you get a benefit without any detriment whatsoever. I also think deep mulching is a must, both on the beds and on the pathways between the beds. And that's because I'm trying to establish a watershed, and I'm trying to establish a life net, and I'm trying to prevent water loss. Well, my main sources of water loss are solar radiation and wind. When I mulch, I mitigate that to a great deal, and I reduce the amount of evaporation that comes. So I think the bed should be mulched, the pathway should be mulched. What we're going to do with our paths is we're going to remove an inch or two of soil out of those paths, and then we're going to take and lay down a sheet of cardboard and put about four inches of wood. So they'll actually look above grade. But when you have wood shifts, water doesn't treat them the way it does soil. It just kind of fits in between them and falls down in there and it breaks them down. And over time, that will continue to grow the, 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 uh, the soil. And we can actually take the broken down material from the, from the pathways and move it up onto the beds as a compost, as a fertilizer, and then replace it with new material. So now we've taken composting from this great big pile that's far away, and all we're bringing is light, fluffy, organic matter to act as mulch. And as it breaks down, we're just moving it up out and bringing more in. Much more efficient, much easier, and I don't need it to be composted in 21 days. It can compost in a season, no problem. And now, instead of just bringing compost in, it's composting by feeding the life in my soil. So it brings things into just kind of a different level. Uh, a lot of people also ask me, how can you do polyculture um, in, in these systems. I want to grow a whole bunch of peppers. Well, you can grow a bed of peppers, and it's still really not a monoculture because sitting right next to it's a bed of tomatoes, sitting right next to it's a bed of, of, of parsley, sitting right next to it's a bed of something else. So you have what, what I would call clumpy polyculture in that situation. A monoculture isn't a bed of one thing. 
It really isn't. It's an, it's an entire yard of one thing. Your, your lawn is a monoculture of, of one or two species of grass. When you go look at a farm field and there's a hundred acres of corn, it's a monoculture of corn. But even with this, we don't have to be purist to have ease of harvest. Because that's the reason that people want a pepper bed for ease of harvest. Well, in this nice mounded bed, and if you look at them, they look awful flat for how mounded they are. I could have two rows of peppers high up. And down lower, I could have things that might appreciate a little bit more coolness, a little bit more shade, that suffer a little bit in the heat. I could bring in lettuces and spinaches and things like that. I could plant herbs in between the peppers. I could space them out a little further than I normally would to fit other plants within them. I could plant low-growing bush beans in with the peppers. Now I've got a nitrogen exchange with the pepper, with the legume. I can get creative. I can put one or two species or three or four species into a single bed and integrate them quite well. I can practice square foot gardening with this if I really want to. I'm not going to have nice square grid, but I can basically look at the soil and go foot, 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 foot. And I can plant according to square foot garden uh, uh, allocation to that. I can do bio-intensive if I want. I can plant any way I want into the bed. The bed is just the structure. It's an organic matter mound designed to harvest, maintain, and control and prevent the evaporation of water. That's the system that I've designed here. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you want to do tomatoes, 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 peppers, peppers, peppers. It's not the way I would do it, but you can. And it doesn't matter if you want to do a completely integrated polyculture in every bed. You can. You can do it however you want. Now, when it comes to harvest, it does make sense to maybe kind of say, okay, like these four beds are going to have an awful lot of peppers in them. They might have a lot of other things in them. They're going to have a lot of peppers. So I can go up and down the rows a couple times and get my jalapenos or my bells or whatever it is I want to harvest. But there is no limitation due to the structure of the bed. Now, what I kind of want to finish up with just is to give you the way the whole system functions end to end. So imagine we've got this built. We've got 20 or 30 beds like this, big structure. Uh, each bed is on a contour, so it's level and flat. When it rains, I'll have to shoot some more video for you guys when I get back from New Hampshire because I'm just flat out of time. But I did water the system once it was established because you can say you don't need irrigation. And again, I'll get to that in a second, why I think it's a good idea to set it up. But even if it was the case, well, you need irrigation if it doesn't rain the day you build the bed because the bed's pretty gone dry the day you build it. So you need to charge up that system. So I set a sprinkler up, and I run the sprinkler, and the water in front of the bed just sits in a puddle. It just sits there. I mean, within five minutes of turning the sprinkler on, there's just a little puddle, a flat half-inch deep puddle of water. It's exactly what you want to happen. You don't want the water running away. You want it sitting there. And when you turn the sprinkler off, the water slowly seeps into the soil and wicks into the bed. Okay, so that's the basic outline of what you're doing here. But if we built the whole system, we have 10, 20 beds. And we have this multi-tiered going downhill structure. The water hits the ground. Once the ground can no longer absorb water, it begins to move toward the bed. This is a rain event. As it hits the bed, it flows into these contour paths that act like swales. They can hold a couple inches of water. A couple inches of water across, now we're not talking about 20 feet. We're talking about hundreds of feet as you add up 20 plus 10 plus 20 plus 10 plus 20 plus 10 plus 20 plus 10. And you don't have to do 10 and 20. That's just what I chose because of my space. It could be... 50 and 20, it could be 5 and 15, you could build your beds, they don't even all have to be in, in multiples of each other, you can do it anywhere you want, but you got that, just add it up, and it's a lot of harvesting. The water flows into the first contour paths. It's also already flowing between the beds because water's landing there too from the rain. That path fills up to the point where it just can't, it just can't take any more. Water slowly begins to discharge around the edges and through the gaps that you've created. It flows down to the next, it gets harvested. It flows down to the next, it gets harvested. It flows down to the next, it gets, it flows down to the next. Now I have basically a puddle underneath my wood mulch in all my paths, underneath my beds. My beds are saturated. My wood course, everything is saturated. And now the rain stops. The ground says, I can take a little more. I can take a little more. I can, it's finally, it takes as much as it can and whatever's left evaporates. It just can't take it. Now the whole system's charged up. The plants begin to draw from that reservoir. They can draw from that reservoir and survive once their roots are established, once the system's established for a long time before they need another major rain event. But if I irrigate, 
Every single drop of irrigation that's in excess of what's needed now is held to relieve my need to irrigate in the future. And there's a lot at play here. I may need to irrigate specifically early on during the establishment phase of new plants in an annual garden, peppers and tomatoes and things like that. As they mature, I may need to irrigate not at all for a while. In the most severe drought situations, I may want to irrigate even if the plants are surviving because by taking some of the stress from my plants, I get a better quality product. But if I put perennials into this, if I take a bed and say this is going to be blackberries and strawberries and some perennial herbs mixed together, well, that system, those roots get bigger every year. They integrate deeper with the mycelium. They integrate deeper with the spongy organic core. They integrate deeper with the reservoir that's been created underneath the garden. And those can probably go with no irrigation within a season or two. In some climates, you may be able to launch this system and never irrigate it. I just think that, you know, when I, when I hear Paul Wheaton over and I love Paul, but over and over, you don't need irrigation, you don't need irrigation. You live in Montana. Okay, you live in Montana. You have a handful of days that hit 100 degrees. We can get 90 days or more. Well, Seth went to the, Seth can go to the desert all he wants. My point is that in the, and don't tell me Seth doesn't irrigate, because when we planted in Montana, the first thing they did was drag a garden hose down there and water the hell out of everything, because when you first build it, you gotta wet it down. So there's an establishment phase. So if we establish that irrigation, we can let it go to any point we want before we go ahead and utilize it. And to me, it just makes sense, because now we've built a water-wise system. And it's easier for me to keep that system topped off than for me to let it deplete and hope nature will do the work. I want to work with nature, not against her. So people say, I want to let nature do the work. Okay, I mean, that's that's really what I want to do. So I, I, I agree that I don't want to irrigate unless I have to. But if turning a faucet will improve my results, then by God, I'll do it. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I want to finish up here with some information on an upcoming workshop that will teach these techniques. When we get back from New Hampshire, we're going to go ahead and set a firm date. My only real, because I know I can get equipment from a company just down the road here uh, and bring in maybe a small excavator, like a mini excavator is all this is going to require, and I'm sure they can put me in touch with an operator. So that's no problem. I'm going to need additional compost um, for the compost mixing. Uh, I've got plenty of material from the existing garden beds if I need more of that, though, and I need mulch. All of that I can get at a place called Silver Creek Materials less than a mile away. Um, if it comes down to it, we'll build them with wood chips. And maybe people will stop asking me if you can do that if I show you that you can. But I would prefer to create a longer duration system to do this with wood. I only have so much live oak that's dead or dying to cut. So my biggest limitation is wood. So if there's someone local to the area that can get me wood, specifically hardwood in the neighbor of four to six inch diameter stock, I need a bunch of that. Uh, but one way or another, I'll solve that. And then all the other materials beyond what we already have on site... We can source locally less than two miles away. Uh, don't need to bring in a big dump truck or anything. We can bring it in with pickups. I can stage, you know, stage it and anything that we need on the fly, we can go down there and get it. So that's good to go. Um, I'm not sure with sleeping arrangements yet. I may say for this first one, you know, basically you can, you can sleep in one of my garages on a cot or, or whatever. You can bring a tent or you can get a hotel. Um, I'd like to have everybody stay here. We're not really going to be ready for that yet. Um, but there's plenty of decent hotels within a few miles of here. Um, I, the reason I'd rather have people stay here is I find that like some of the best parts of these events are sitting around a fire after the workshop and talking to people. So I'd like to make that as available as possible for people. Maybe people that want to have a beer or two. Maybe we arrange if we, if we pick a, a certain hotel that most people stay at, we can arrange like designated driver or somebody that doesn't drink and can help a few people because I don't want anybody getting a DUI. I don't expect anybody to be drunk uh, at my workshop, but you know, you have three or four beers. You really don't belong behind the wheel. Um, I, I believe that. So uh, maybe we'll try to work something out with that. But I, I just think that in all of these events that I've ever been a part of, that when you sit around the fire at 7 o'clock at night after dinner and talk, that that's a huge part of the value. So I want to bring some of that. So I'll try to figure out how to let people stay here if they want to. It won't be that hot out yet, so camping may not be a bad thing. We won't have done any design in the in the West Paddock yet, so there will be plenty of parking. 
Uh, people will be able to go in and out at will with their vehicles because we'll just keep that paddock blocked off for the dogs. And my house will be open to those who attend. I don't know how many people we're going to let attend. Uh, this will be our first workshop. So I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to screw some stuff up. I'm going to make some mistakes. There will not be a 100% satisfaction rate. I will do everything I can. I will break my neck to try to provide it, but I will mess some things up. I know that. The less people I have, the easier it is to fix those mistakes. So I'm thinking this workshop, we might limit to 10 to 12 people, something in that neighborhood, uh, maybe 20. We'll see. It's a good test run. Uh, I know I've talked about the lot workshop. That's going to be in the fall. We, there's no way we can do that in the spring at this point. Um, and Steve Harris and I may be doing one uh, around the uh, expo in Arlington as well, another completely different workshop. So we're going to kind of take our time, ramp up into this. But this is what the experience will, will be in general. You'll come here. Uh, we'll walk the entire property. I'll give you my explanation of contour. I will show you the contours that we have done with the laser level. I will teach you how to use a laser level. I will teach you how to use an A-frame level. I will teach you the limitations of each. I will show you U.S. geological survey results of the contours of my land. And I will show you how erosion and man's activity have changed the actual contour from the underlying mainframe rock-based contours that underlie the land and where those things diverge, why those things diverge, and why that's important in design. I will talk to you about moving water from one place to another. We will bring a small excavator in and we will complete or get very close to completing all of the beds uh, that need to be there. I will have at least four to six of them built by hand already. I will have a complete understanding of exactly what bill of materials we need for them and we will construct them together. Uh, people that come will do some work, specifically planning and moving dirt around with a shovel or a hoe. It will do very little digging because there will be a machine for that. And I think that's the way to go with that. We'll probably be doing some rock picking. So yes, you'll be, I just want to be clear. There'll be some work being done, but there will be a tremendous educational component to it as well. And the work won't be hard because when you take 12 people, 15 people to do this, it gets easy. I'm building these beds by hand in two days myself with a shovel. So if we're going to build eight or 10 or 12 of them with an excavator, that tells you that it, it's not that hard. I am hoping by then to have skinned how I'm going to do the long-term efficient irrigation of this project. If I do, even if we don't do the entire irrigation project, we will lay out the design, we will put some of it in so you can see how it works, and from there it's like an erector set, you just add more. I am probably going to go with soaker hose-based irrigation because I've already done some testing with drip line irrigation, and due to the iron content of my well, I've had drippers stop working within a week of putting them in. And that's just not going to work. That's just not going to be efficient. If that, if I don't have a solution designed by then, we will do irrigation by laying out sprinklers, which sounds kind of duh and boring. But I will show you how to do it in a way that you can set it up in the time of the year that you have to water, because you don't have to water all year with a system like this. And whenever you need to water, you can just come outside, turn some valves, and make it work. Uh, we will we will do all of that. I will give you multiple ways that you could do the irrigation based on your property. I will tell you how you could do it with drip. I will tell you how you could automate it. I can tell you how you do it manually. I will explain all of that to you. We will talk about polycultures. We will explain why we're planting, what we're planting in the different beds. Some of the beds we will establish with annuals. Some we will establish with perennials. We will have a great time. We will eat really good food cooked on the grill. It will not be cheap. It will not be expensive. It will be whatever Excel says it has to be so I can give you the experience that I'm promising you. I will figure out how much I need to feed everybody, how much it's going to cost to do all of the work. I will put it all into an Excel spreadsheet, and I will run it as a not-for-profit workshop. In other words, I want to cover the cost of running the workshop. That doesn't even main, include possibly including the materials. Right? I'm talking about the equipment, the operator and taking care of everybody. I don't mind buying my own plants and my own mulch. That's not what I'm not here to get you guys to fund the construction of my garden. I want to do this in a way that does several things. One, I want everybody to walk away and go, I can do that. I can go out right now and I can do that. I want everybody that leaves to go, I not only can do that, I can teach that. I can go into any landscape and I can replicate that and I can show somebody else how to do that. And I don't want you to go do it. I mean, that's, that's part of what I want to get better at running because we've never done one before. 
This is the first one, your guinea pigs. I'll be honest with you. I'll make it fun. I'll probably add an extra day that we can just sit around and talk and shoot the shit and uh, spend some time together, and people can either stay for that or leave just to make it extra. I'll throw down with the food, um, but we'll, we'll mess some stuff up. So messing stuff up is how we're going to figure out how to not mess stuff up in the future, right? How to do a better job uh, each and every time that we do a workshop like this. So I'm being honest about that, but you will learn. And you've probably, if you've really paid attention to today's show and you take the 40 minutes of video that go with this show, you've probably learned more from just this show and those videos than you can learn about this type of a design system from just about anything that's out there short of going out and doing it yourself. So imagine what you can learn from a workshop like this. This workshop won't just teach you to make these beds. When you leave this workshop, you will be able to go and establish a swell-based system because we're doing it in miniature, and I will show you where it would be on full scale and how it would work. And I will take you into this uh, environment that I have here with this limestone bed that's a restrictive environment. And if you can operate in that restrictive environment, imagine what happens if somebody gives you six feet of soil to work with before you hit a rock. So... That's going to be the workshop, and again, I am thinking right now off the top of my head, March 29th-ish, like that Friday 28, 29, 30, 31, it's either going to be that week, or it's going to be like April 5, 6. That's, that's what I'm thinking right now, and uh, again, this is probably going to be a three or four day workshop, done mostly over a weekend, maybe a Friday through a weekend, um, if you want to attend it. Uh, send me an email with Jack's workshop in the subject line. I'll start building a waiting list. I can't take everybody. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as popular as the Jeff Lawton thing. I'm thinking, again, I have to do the math, but I'm thinking $200 to $400. And I think that's an incredible price for what we're looking to do to help you guys out. And, uh, again, uh, Jack's workshop in the subject line And uh, I'll put you on a list, and when we iron out the details and total costs, I'll take people in the order that they showed up. And uh, that's the only way I know to be fair with things like this, guys. I can't do a 100 headcount workshop, and frankly, I don't want to do one. I will tell you this. This will not be the only chance to learn this. There's no way we're going to actually completely build out the entire system in a three-day period. This will be phase one of a multi-phase thing we will do this exact thing again at least one more time at least one more time and there'll be other things we do on the property that won't be this particular area that if you did them and came to a workshop for that you would know exactly how to do this and everything we build into this when you come to a future workshop part of the workshop will be a touring and an understanding of what already has been designed so it's not a one-time only thing Um, but I do hope that I get it, you know, I say I'm going to limit it, given it's a short workshop and it's just me, uh, I do hope I get at least 10 or 12 people, because short of that, I don't know that it's really worth doing, so, um, and again, I know it's not free, uh, but I can't do it for free, I, I simply cannot do this for free, I can't afford to do it for free, um, because I got to feed you guys, I mean, if nothing else, I, I'm looking at 20 bucks a piece per day to feed everybody, minimum. And it's probably not enough because I'm talking throwing down with some meat. This is going to be, if you are a vegetarian and you're coming to this, there'll be salad. <laughs> That's all I could say. If you want more than, there'll be salad and some vegetables. If you want, you know, pasta and rice and stuff like that, for you're going to have to provide for yourself. This is going to be a highly paleocentric event. We're going to have pastured poultry. We're going to have grass-fed beef. We're going to do it. We're going to do it up. And we're going to have a great time. And I hope to see some of you guys there. Until then, I have now got to uh, produce this show and two more shows today. And go get a haircut and finish up my presentation all today so I can get on a plane tomorrow. And I'll see many of you at the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I will be on my way back to Texas Sunday and can figure out how to actually run this first workshop. And I hope you've really enjoyed today's show. Again, there's over 40 minutes of video of the initial phases of the development of this project. 
Uh, there'll be at least another 20 to 30 minutes of video put together next week when I get back. Uh, at that point, I think you'll really understand the system, and at that point, I think we'll also be going ahead and starting registrations as long as I can skin the last cat. Again, folks, if you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you can provide wood for me. Uh, I would really appreciate it, and I'll take what I can get wherever I can get it. Uh, there's no such thing as too little. One truckload here, one truckload there starts to add up. Any sort of hardwood, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. You can just bring it out and drop it off and have a beer with me at that time you do it. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. These days you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares